Father, thank you so very much that when we sing songs like this, you make sure it's not theoretical. I can't help but think of those moments when Karen and I would weep ourselves to sleep because of pain and disappointment and heartache and burden. And yet looking back, we thank you for those times because that's when you wrote authenticity over our souls and over our Christianity. And God, I just, uh, I just pray that our people, Lord, will turn to you. I pray, God, for those who are struggling and suffering here and uncertain about the future and about tomorrow and the dark clouds are hovering over them, oh God, and it's beginning to rain and the lightning is flashing in their souls and everything about them is unstable, oh God. May they go to the rock that it's higher than them. May they turn to God Almighty, else should I. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will crash through the realities of our stress and struggle and pain and disappointments, oh God. May we know that God is real not just in our minds and not just our God talk in words, but in our souls. May we experience the power and sustaining grace of our great God. Strengthen us, O oh God. May we not run from you, but may we run to your open arms. Thank you for yourself and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. We serve a mighty God, don't we, fellowship? Amen. What a great God. Well, good morning to you. If you've got a Bible, I want you to turn it to uh, Psalm 119. Um, actually, I want you to turn to Psalm 119 and just uh, look down at verse 129. We're going to get there in a moment. But I want to just say a couple of things. I'm so excited about a number of things that's happening here in our church uh, on October the 26th, that weekend is going to be just an exciting weekend for us. We, we do this um, just about every year, sort of a spiritual emphasis weekend. And that Sunday, Ken Boa is going to be here preaching for us, and I'm excited about that. Ken is uh, just an incredible teacher of the Word of God. And I remind you again, for those of us who have not registered yet, if you're a guy here, uh, we have a special men's event that Saturday morning. My two sons and myself will be doing uh, this uh, session entitled uh, Shaping the Next Generation beginning at 8 o'clock in the morning, and, and it'll be over by about 1130. Um, Ernie Johnson Jr., a good friend, is going to be emceeing that time. So go online and register, and uh, it promises to be a great time. And, you know, my son said, Dad, we'll let you down a little easy, but we need to tell them some things about you that they don't know. And I'm going, okay. Uh, but it should, be, it should be a great time. And please do register now because other churches are responding, and it will be just, just a wonderful, wonderful time. We're in this series, DNA series, we're calling it. And as you know, DNA doesn't change. Uh, it is the same. It is who we are. And about once a year or so, we do something like this just to remind us of who are we? What are we as a church? There are all kinds of churches, all kinds of ministries, all kinds of emphasis and that kind of thing. And I don't judge any of them. Some of them are just wonderful, even though we, we don't necessarily do things the way others do it. Different is not wrong. It's just different. And we can learn certainly from all kinds of ministries and approaches and strategies and that kind of thing. But who are we? 
What is Fellowship Bible Church all about? What signature has God written over us? What should we steward? What is the vision for this church? What is our mission? What should people who go through Fellowship Bible Church, what what should we look like? Who should we be? And you heard last week that we wrestled with this as elders and and, uh, leaders in the church to try to figure out, okay, where, where, where is the right place for us? Now, again, this is not a departure from Colossians 1, 28 and 29. You walk around this building, you see no experience and serve and maturity in Christ. Uh, It's not a departure from that, but we wanted to bring further clarity and specificity to Paul's rendition of the Great Commission. And so we've landed on a mission statement, who we are, and we want to unpack that. Now, I'd like for us to read this together. And by the way, I want to encourage you to memorize this. Uh, Our mission statement is that we exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus who love God passionately and who love others unconditionally. Now, that's not just something that we dreamed up. uh, That's anchored, as I said last week, in two passages of Scripture. Last week, I gave sort of the uh, banks of the river. You know, a river that doesn't have banks is not a river, it's a swamp. Uh, in order for something to have direction, it needs banks. And those, there's two passages of Scripture that represents the banks of the river here at Fellowship Bible Church. Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus responded to the lawyer that came up to him and said, and now when I said lawyer, I made the differentiation. You do know that this is not a barrister or a trial lawyer like we have today. This guy was literally a lawyer in the sense that he was an expert in the Mosaic law. And the Pharisees put him up to going up to Jesus to try to show him out. And he asked Jesus, well, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And I made the observation there were 613 commandments that these dudes would argue over as to which one was the greatest. And Jesus did not give him one of the Ten Commandments, which he probably thought he was going to. But he gave him one that they quoted every day from the Decalogue. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then Jesus gave him a bonus. And the second is like it. He only asked for one, but Jesus gave him two. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. And I tried to point out last week, the reason why he gave him two is that you cannot authentically love God without loving your neighbor. They're inseparable. They're inseparable. And so that represents one part. We love God passionately and we love others unconditionally. But the first part of our mission statement is lodged in what Jesus said to his followers in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. Just before he was going to ascend into heaven, he says, this is what you need to know in order to change the world. And rightly so, we call it the Great Commission. Excuse me, the Great Commission. He says, therefore, all authority is going to be in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. All the nations. And so the emphasis there is is reproducing ourselves by making disciples, making disciples, not converts, but by making disciples. And one of the things that I want you to get this, and you can fall back asleep after this statement, but I want you to get this, get this, get this, get this, get this, get this. I'm going to say this repeatedly. This mission statement is not our mission statement, meaning Crawford, the staff, the elders. This is, not, this is not our mission statement. This is not our program template for Fellowship Bible Church. This is not what we're going to do for the church, but this is our mission statement. My job, my role here at the church is not to come up with creative programs to keep things afloat. 
Our job as staff and elders is not to sit in some little boardroom and whiteboard where we're going to be. Now, we do that. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm using a little bit of hyperbole here, but our job is not to think of ways of how we can help the church and sell you on where we're going. Our job, our job is to help you to reproduce the life of Jesus. That's what our job is. Our job is to equip you to be what God's called you to be. It's about multiplying discipleship. Now, beginning today, beginning today and for the next uh, three weeks, we're going to look at the four big hows, H-O-W-S, the four big hows in Scripture in terms of making disciples and reproducing followers of Jesus Christ. What is that built on? What are the four lanes? And I trust these will be the four things that every program, every emphasis, what we do here at Fellowship Bible Church will be measured by. These are the four things. Four things, and we don't don't want anything to compete with them, but they're four very clear things. And I would like to say that these are embedded throughout the Scriptures. These are the four pathways, the four major tributaries, if you will, that flow into this great river of making disciples of Jesus who love God passionately and love others unconditionally. The first one, which where we really began, is a regular diet of God's Word. A regular diet of God's Word. In John chapter 17, now we call, we call the prayer, the model prayer that Jesus prayed in the Sermon on the Mount, we call that the Lord's Prayer, but technically speaking, that's a little wrong. If you want want to call something the Lord's Prayer, it is John 17, because that is the Lord's Prayer. In John 17, Jesus is praying in the garden, and this is the content of his prayer just before he's going to ascend into heaven, uh, just before, I'm sorry, before he's going to be crucified. He's praying, and the theme of that prayer is that he is praying for his disciples and followers throughout every generation. And then he has this remarkable statement. Listen to the prayer request. Listen to what he asks the Father to do. He says about his followers, us, in succeeding generations, he says, sanctify them in your truth, for your word is truth. Uh, Think about that for a second. Sanctify them in your truth, for your word is truth. The word sanctify means to be set apart. It means to be holy. Now, he's not asking for Christians to be weird from one generation to the next. What he's talking about there, what he's talking about there is that I want you to sanctify, set set apart your followers and protect them during their moment in history. May the culture not determine the content and veracity of their Christianity and their walk with me. May the word of God give them life and vibrancy and stability. May the literal voice of God be everything that marks them, the signature over their souls. Listen to me, listen to me. When Jesus said in in Matthew 28, verse 20, he says in verse 19, make disciples of all nations, baptizing, verse 20, and teaching them everything that I've commanded you, he is saying that there is no discipleship apart from identification with Jesus, that's baptism, and there is no such thing as being a follower, a disciple of Jesus, without a passion for his word. None. 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 Now, I know that's very strong, 
Uh, some of you would, would, would rather me speak in emotional terms here and inspirational terms and say wonderful, nice, glowing things that are not true and touchy-feely. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus prayed that we might be sanctified in truth, for your word is truth. And then he told his followers, listen, listen, the only mark of true discipleship is if they identify with me and they continue in my teaching which is his, his word. Now, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit as I put this together because there's a side of me that wanted to talk about the validity and veracity of the Bible. And, I, and I, I've decided not to do this, but I, I do need to say this. If, if you're struggling with whether or not uh, the Bible is true and how do we know that the Bible is true, let me just click off five areas, five headers that I think maybe you can go and investigate for yourself but I'll just sort of give a brief sentence summary of each one. Uh, We know that the Bible is true when we consider these five areas. I mean, it's more of them, but these are five to consider. Number one, experience. What do you mean by that? Well, the Bible gives us the experiences that it claims to give. Uh, The forgiveness of sin and the transformation of lives. You must look at that in terms of the billions of people throughout history who have been transformed by the words of this book. Secondly, science. Now, to be sure, the Bible is not a scientific textbook as such, but check it out. Whenever the Bible speaks about a scientific principle, it is 100% accurate. Thirdly, Jesus. And you might say, well, Crawford, aren't you appealing to the source to be the validation of the source? I guess I am in a certain way, But Jesus was the greatest religious leader or figure throughout all of history, and Jesus himself believed in the authority, obviously, of the Bible. He said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, heaven and earth shall pass away, but not one part of this book shall fail. Miracles. The Bible is a supernatural book. It's a book uh, that demonstrates a supernatural activity of the God who authored it. And then, of course, there's prophecy. This is absolutely remarkable. You know, here you have a book that's written by 1,000, uh, written over a period of 1,600 years by about 40 different authors, most of whom were not contemporaries. Now, you think about that for a second. Most of whom were not contemporaries. And yet, not only is there not any contradiction in the Bible itself, but 100% of everything that the Bible predicted comes out with pinpoint accuracy. And so you have to consider these things as other things. Again, I don't want to step all into that. Christians need to be people of one book. What do you mean by that? I don't think the Bible is, obviously, I'm not saying that the Bible is the only book that we read. But as as follows Christ, we need to be people of one, one book. You, you, you may have heard of uh, Dr. Walter Scott, who was a British novelist and poet and a great Christian. Uh, when Walter Scott was dying, he summoned his secretary and he said to her, bring me the book. She, she sort of looked at him aghast and she looked around the library that he had thousands of books. And she said, uh, uh, Dr. Scott, which book? Look at these books. What, what, which book? He says, no, bring me the book, the Bible. And then he made this statement. It's the only book for a dying man. I would add to that, it's the only book for a living 
a living person. And he, here's the bottom line. Listen, 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 listen. We're living in an open-ended culture and an open-ended time in history where people do not like to make decisions, especially decisions relative to which is better than something else. So we, we live in this time in which even as followers of Christ, we don't want to say that the Bible is greater than or better than all other sources of, quote, truth. But the truth of the matter is we need to make a decision. This is God's word. It is his book. It is his voice. It is given to us. It speaks with authority. There, there cannot be any other options. The Bible is God's word. And I think as followers of Christ, we need to make up our minds. Either it is that or it isn't that. We need to be people of the book. And everything I say today is based upon that, that assumption. Uh, in fact, I'd like for you to look at this on the screen. I want to summarize this by saying, here's the importance of the Bible being the Word of God to us. If we do not approach the Bible with wonder, awe, and a heart to hear and embrace the voice of God, we forfeit intimacy with Him and abandon His plan for our lives. You, you can't be neutral when it comes to the Bible. If we do not approach the Bible with wonder, awe, and a heart to hear and embrace the very voice of God, we forfeit intimacy with him and abandon his plans for our lives. I chose those words intentionally, and I use the word voice intentionally. This book that's in your hand is the voice of Almighty God. They're not a collection of sacred writings. They're not musings of great poets and cultural leaders. The book that you're holding in your hand is the voice of God Almighty. If you don't embrace that, we will forever struggle and be casual about our relationship to this book. It is the voice, the voice of God. Now, I want to talk today just real briefly in the time that I have left on the four primary relationships that we're to have with the Bible. As you read through the scriptures, what, what are the relations? How should we be related to the scripture? Now, I very seldom do this because I don't know that certain things are sequential, but I actually think the order that I'm giving these four things, these four primary relationships we ought to have with the Bible, are in order. But as I've often said, be careful when you listen to guys like me who are listy. They're, they're not as separated as they come across. They're, they're, they're together, but they are in order. These are the four primary relationships that a disciple, a follower of Jesus, ought to have with the voice of God. Number one, we're to love it. Number two, we're to learn it. Number three, we're to live it. And number four, we're to share it. Not all that heavy. The four relationships that we're to have with the truth of God's word. We're to love it. We're to learn it. We're to live it. And we're to share it. We live under the canopy of God's voice. Did you hear what I just said? 
We live under the canopy of God's voice. That's where we have our identity as followers of Jesus. I, I got, I got, you, you, you got to understand what I'm trying to say here. You don't make forays into truth and then live your life based upon your assumptions and you get out there on a limb and then you come back to God's truth. Multiplying disciples say to themselves, I live under the canopy of the voice of God. I live there. And so within that confines and within that context, I've made my decision to live there, which means I must love it. I've got to learn it. I must live it. And I have to share it. First of all, I, I need to need to love it. Over in, in, in uh, 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 Psalm 119, I'll read verse 129 and verse 136. Uh, most believe that David, David wrote this. But in, in these two verses, I, I've, I've observed th- uh, there, there are three um, heart descriptions of a relationship to the Word of God. Listen to what David says here. In verse 129, he says, Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. Your testimonies are wonderful, and therefore my soul keeps them. Camp of the word Wonderful. That's to be taken in its broadest emotional sense, in the sense that, you know, the, 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 the Word of God, the voice of God strikes in me awe. It is amazing. Nothing compares to it. It is the ultimate, uh, um, it is the ultimate model and, 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 and moral good. It captures my thinking. It captures my heart. It is out of this world and meant to be captured by everything that I am. It is wonderful. Imagine the God of the universe would choose to communicate what is pure, holy, and right to us. It is wonderful. And that's the reason why God gives us tests and trials as followers of Jesus for us to prove the richness and wonder of his word. Well, you wake up in the middle of the night and your Bible's on the nightstand and you just pat it. Sometimes you pick it up and you kiss it. I know that sounds a little weird. No, I'm not worshiping the binder and the font size and that kind of thing. But it's the voice of God. It is wonderful that the one who created our souls would speak to us and speak to us so, so clearly. And secondly, it is a treasure. And you guard that treasure. The second part of verse 129 says, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. Uh, what is treasured requires to be guarded. <laughs> oh, this is so personal. But look, uh, when I travel outside of the country now, uh, Uh, Karen still does this, but this was, it's always meaningful, but this was particularly meaningful. I'm showing my age here, dating myself. In those days when we didn't have Skyping and FaceTime and, you know, email was not all that accessible. And uh, when I'd be taking a long trip out of the country, whether I was in Johannesburg or, you know, Kampala, Uganda, or wherever it might be, you know one of the things she used to do? She does this to this day, by the way, if I'm on a long trip, and I look forward to this. One of the things she used to do, she would always write me a letter and put it in the envelope and put it in my suitcase. You know the first thing I would do? I still do this. 
the first thing I do before I even unpack my clothes is I look for that letter. And I read that thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Because the letter was her voice. It reminded me of her presence. And this stuff about the word of God is not all, don't make it so theoretical. God has written to us his voice. It's him. It's his presence. And we need to immerse ourselves in it. And so the very first thing I want to ask you to do, and this is why I started the message this way, the very first thing I want to ask you to do, you know, don't legalistic gut, legalistically gut your way through the Bible, okay? Now, sometimes you have to do that as an act of the will, and I'm going to get back to that in a second. But the very first thing to do, and I want to challenge every last one of us, would you ask God, if you're struggling with reading God's Word, if you're struggling with applying it to your life, will you ask God to give you a love for his word? Will you ask him to give you a love for his voice? Will you do that? Will you write that down? Write that down. Lord God, help me to love the word of God. And I got to tell you, he will in fact, he will in fact do that just for you. It is meant to be treasured. Our life and priorities should show that we love his word. But he also says it's accessible 136, verse 136 is a powerful emotional verse. Listen to what David says. He says, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Uh, David's not being self-righteous here. What he's saying is, I have learned and experienced the liberating passion of the word of God. It has set me free. And I know what it can do. And my eyes shed tears when I see the bondage of people and I see the messes that they're in and they won't respond to the word of God. You know, I got to tell you this, even as a pastor, I have talked to people in my office. I've interacted with folks and this kind of thing. They're going through hard times. They're facing consequences of bad choices and bad decisions and all of this stuff. And you know, you know, when it boils down to it, they won't listen to God. And I say to myself, why are you assigning yourself to hell? I look at the mess that our country's in. God being disinvited. I look at the complexity of sin and mess. And I, I see it in my own life, Crawford, don't you know if you were more consistently cherishing this book, how liberating it could be? And what David is bemoaning is the fact that it's accessible and it's right here and you could be free. But you choose to go, yeah. So the very first relationship we have with the Word of God is that we should love it. Number two, the second relationship that we need to have with the Word of God is that we learn it. We learn it. Now listen, listen to me. I'm all in favor of good emotions and raising our hands and good warm feelings and sensing God's presence. 
But learning is what Christians do. Learning God's word is what Christians do. There, there is no Christianity apart from education. There is no discipleship apart from learning. There's no walking with God apart from burying ourselves and understanding this book. And so we need to learn it. We need to learn it. And you, you know, you, you, can't, you can't exhaust this book. It's inexhaustible. You never arrive at a time in which you totally know it. You know, you, you never arrive at a time in which you totally master it. It's just absolutely remarkable. I'm at a stage in my life where these young guys that are starting to preaching and this kind of thing, they say, I, I'm running out of things to preach. Really? Really? You run out of things that, what, what, what it's, it's, it's inexhaustible. Stand up and read it, man. If you don't know, read it. It's inexhaustible. I've been at this thing, I've been reading the Bible for 50 years now. And a good portion of those years, I've been a real serious student of the Word of God. You know something? I can't, I, I, I can't t- tell you, I, I, I've read passages that I've preached and taught and go back to them. And there's more and more and more and more and more and more. It's inexhaustible. I was thinking about my week this week. I've got a real busy week. Tomorrow, thanks to my oldest son, I've got to write a long chapter that I don't have time to do for a book that he's writing. And I don't know why he's asking me to write the chapter. That's another issue. But I've got to write this long chapter. And, and you know, it's on the Word of God. And then I've got to prepare for a Fellowship Institute. And then I speak at a preaching conference here in town, and I hop on a plane and speak in Tulsa, Oklahoma at a Promise Keepers event and come back here preach a couple of times. You know what? I ain't worried about what to say. I didn't say it's all together yet, but not. <laughs> what I'm trying to say to you is that this book is inexhaustible. You kidding me? And listen to what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, you know, most of us, you know, you, you say, oh, Crawford, how does this relate to me? I'm a layman. Well, you know, uh, Timothy was a young man. He was a new pastor at this church at Ephesus, and he was getting, he was getting, he was getting a wind knocked out of him. I mean, these folks were like beating him up big time. Paul writes him to kind of like get his courage back in line. But then he talks about the Bible. And he calls Timothy back to his childhood Beginning of verse 14, 2 Timothy 3, 14 says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work." And let me just summarize the two big points that I think that Paul's making to Timothy about learning the book, learning the book. Now, he's in ministry, but Paul says, you never stop learning the book. You get it? You, you never stop learning it. The, 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 he's saying, number one, is that I want you to remember its power and influence in your life. And what does he do? He calls them back. Timothy learned the word of God from two primary human sources, from his family He didn't have a dad in a home, so he learned it from his grandmother and his mother. And he learned it from Paul. Paul became like a father figure to Timothy. 
And he's saying to Timothy, wait, wait, buddy, I need you to understand something. Don't you let your moment in history get you confused. You have learned the Word of God, and it has served as your foundation. Don't wander from that foundation. Remember the strength of your grandmother. Remember the strength of your mother. And remember me, I'm in jail writing you. And we staked our lives on this. And so there's an emotional motivation for learning. Don't you forget this. And then he reaches out and he addresses, secondly, his moment in history. He says, I want you to stay in it. The word continue. Don't forsake what you know. Stay in the word. Stay in the word. Now, there's all kind of reading programs and that kind of thing, and we're going to be introducing something to you in October as a church that we can go through and and that kind of thing where we can make this very practical and it can be applied to us. But I have learned, I've learned in all these years that I've been a follower of Jesus that no reading program in and of itself will replace the will to do it. That the prerequisite to making any of these reading programs and any of these strategies to to make the Word of God accessible and for us to uh, continue to learn it, I've got to make a decision to do it myself. I've got to do this thing. I've got to continue in it. I believe it was Charles Haddon Spurgeon that says, if you see a Bible that's falling apart, it probably belongs to somebody who isn't. And that's the practical implications of learning, learning this, this book. We love it. We learn it. But number three, we live it. We live the book. God uh, doesn't want us to just listen to his word, but to do what it says. Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 6 You see, understanding the scriptures may not be as difficult as we make it. What is clear doesn't need an explanation. It needs a response. And one of the problems that we have for those of us who frequent Bible studies and this kind of thing, and by the way, there are many wonderful opportunities here at the church to learn God's word. There's women's ministry and um, there's uh, the men's stuff that's going on on with uh, Men's Fraternity and Fellowship Institute and our communities that meet on Sunday mornings and not to mention our, just the scores and scores of small groups that are taking place here and all kinds of stuff that I don't even know about that's, that's doing a great job. That is absolutely, absolutely wonderful. But that stuff doesn't make any, any difference if we don't do this stuff. You see, what God is looking for is not people who will agree with what he says, God's not looking for a bunch of Christians who agree with what he says, that go like this and understand the content. He's not looking for agreement. What God is looking for is for our obedience. Not agreement. He's looking for our obedience. In this text, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, I believe that there are three primary motivations for our obedience. Uh, Let me read the text here. It says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. 
that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in in the land flowing with milk and honey. God is repeating, and I want you to do it. 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 I don't want you to talk about it. I don't want you to keep considering it. I want you to do it. I want you to do it. Number one, the first motivation for obedience is that we represent God. This is found in the context. God is saying, look, look, you know, overarching, we exist to glorify God, but he's saying to the people, children of Israel, you're going into this land and you are my people. And the reason why I want you to obey is because you represent me. You've heard me say this a number of times here, and, you know, there's no such thing as a privatized Christianity. We all represent the interest and the cause of Christ. We're members of the body of Christ. And God says to us, look, Crawford, I want you to obey me because this is not about you. This is about me. And you represent me. And your life needs to tell the truth about who I am. So that's the first motivation. The second motivation also in this text is that we want to honor God. It comes from the first one, I I suppose. But we want to reverence and honor and glorify Him. I want to do that. You see, to worship God means to obey God. There's no such thing as worship apart from obedience. Many of us think we have worshipped because we have felt something and uh, we've sensed God's presence. And don't get me wrong, that's part of it. But ultimately, and I know this sounds so terribly transactional, but ultimately, worship is obedience. If, if, If it doesn't cause me to respond by behavior that's consistent with the God that I worship, then I haven't worshipped. Oh, you're looking at me strange, but if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The way I know that my children honor me or respect me is not that they agree with, you know, certain things or they say nice things about me. The way that I know that my children honor me and respect me is if when they're little, they they obey me. Oh, Daddy, thank you for paying all the bills. Dad, thanks for the car that you bought me. Oh, Dad, thanks for the tuition that you paid. Oh, Dad, thanks for this. Oh, Dad, thanks for the vacation. Oh, Dad, thanks for the new clothes. Oh, Dad, thanks for this. Oh, Dad, thanks for that. And you say, well, sweetheart, that's wonderful, but when you, you need to be home at 11 o'clock on Friday night, so I'm tooling the house at 2 o'clock. Oh, Dad, but I love you and I thank you. No, 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 no. Don't tell me love. That's sort of a silly illustration, but that's just the way we are. No, and God says, look, look, look. You, if you want to reference me, you do, do what I say. You do what I say. God has not given his word to us to accommodate our choices, but so that we would understand and do his will. It's a very important distinction. This book has been given to us not to accommodate where Crawford wants to go in life, I don't use this Bible to get what I want to get out of life. The Bible in truth is not given for accommodation. 
is given to disclose God's will and his plan and to bring my life in line with that will and with his plan. And there's another motivation, and that is that we want to experience God's pleasure. That's what verse 3 is all about. Hear therefore, Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you. There is, there is a certain pragmatism here. You know, God says, hey, you, you want to you know blessing? You want to know favor? Well, obey me. Part of my, one of my big frustrations sometimes as a pastor and, and talking with people, I, yeah, I, I, I talk to people who compartmentalize. Now, I, I can tell you, I have, I have that. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're human. I got that temptation too. I have literally talked to people who are living in all kinds of sinful mess. You know, they're, they're lying, they're, they're abusive to their partner in marriage, their, their, their husband or wife. They're irresponsible. They're lazy. They're not paying their bills. They have a hidden life where they're addicted to porn. They're doing all kinds of stuff. And then they'll sit in your office and they start crying because, you know, I can't seem to hold a job and things are not working out for me. You go, yo, dude, there might be a relationship. And I don't mean to sound crass or silly. But sometimes things are not going well because we ain't going well. So God says, you, you want to be in a place of blessing? You want to be in a place of blessing? And I want to shower you with blessing. Will, will, you, will you obey me? Will, will you live it? Shh, don't talk so much about it. Just, will you live it? Finally, the fourth relationship is that we're to love it. We're to learn it. We're to live it but we're also to share it. You see, God is all about multiplication with everything that we do. I don't know who said it in our teaching meeting. We have a wonderful meeting on Tuesday morning, worship team meeting. I don't know who said it. Uh, so many people are in there, but somebody said this, quoted someone as saying, look, truth that is not shared is stolen. There's a lot of truth to that. Everything in the Christian life has a reproductive multiplying component to it. You don't just learn the Bible to keep it to yourself. Everything that, that happens to us, it is really a part of the incarnation. It is a part, this is heavy theology that I'm walking into right now. I don't want to get sidetracked here. But Jesus modeled in the incarnation and crucifixion and victory of the resurrection, the cycle of discipleship. We come to him, we receive from him, and we give out to others. And the vision is, in everything that we do, we're to replicate and multiply. And I don't mean to offend anybody, but listen to me, listen to me. There, there are just too many Christians who are, who are Bible study groupies. I mean, they, they go to every Bible study, imagine. I've run into these folks. 
They, they've gone there, they, they've gone to this study on this morning and that study on the next morning and this small group study on this thing and this kind of thing on that. And they're not sharing or teaching anybody. It's as if they have an incestuous relationship with more correct theology. I know that sounds strange coming from me, but God has called all of us to minister and to share his word. To use what we learn to encourage somebody else, to teach somebody else, and maybe take a little bit of a break or a hiatus from one or two of the Bible studies that you're going to and learning and teach one yourself in order to pour into somebody else's life. And one of the problems we have, and this is the reason why numbers-wide, and somebody's going to shoot me at this, sometimes Bible churches shrink over time is because we get ingrown. And we think that being more correct and being more right and learning more and learning more and learning more, we pour it all on ourselves and then we don't give it out. And it's in the giving out that causes us to be authentic and not be hypocrites. Because when you got to share this stuff, it puts the pressure on living this stuff. I said, Crawford, you're ranting today. Look... <laughs> Uh, that's one man's opinion. I've learned that. Uh, share, it nat- nat- share it naturally and passionately. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, real, really quick. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to land a plane on this soon, I promise you. Verse 6 says, And these words I command you today, now listen, 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 shall be on your heart. Shall be on your heart. On your heart. God's Word is a part of who we are, and it is what we live for. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, I'm not, I'm not talking about some legalistic stuff, but my voice has got to be right here. It's got to be right here. It's got to be on your, it's got to be on your heart, Crawford. Come on, man. You know, typically what we're passionate about is obvious. We're possessed by it, and we live for it, and other people know about it. I got to tell you, I got a friend of mine, I've known him for years from a distance, but never over the last 10 years got really kind of close to him. And uh, I remember about 18 years ago, I, I, I found out uh, this guy is a Civil War historian. He lives in another city, and so uh, I was a house guest, and you walk in the house, <laughs> the house is like a Civil War museum. And... Uh, and I made the mistake. You ever ask somebody a question, and two minutes after you ask him, you say, why did I ask that question? <laughs> I asked him a question about the Civil War, because I was sort of interested. And man, this dude started going on, and I have to confess to the Lord, I was, after about 10 minutes, I was sort of faking interest in her. <laughs> Help me. But at any rate, he was passionate about it. Why? It was, he was absorbed in it. It's the most important thing in the world. And that's what God is saying to the children of Israel. This truth, this truth is the most important thing in the world. That's when sometimes when I preach and it gets good to me, there's history there. Get in your heart. Share it with passion. And tell these young preachers all the time, if you, if you stand up boring people to death, sit down and shut up. 
You don't believe this? If it doesn't light a fire in your bosom, don't ever open your Bible. You've got to share it naturally and passionately. Number two, share it faithfully. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, chapter 4, the chapter divisions are not in the Bible, so Paul is like giving him a little bit over in chapter 3. He said, Timothy, here's the foundation of what you believe, buddy. Come on, man. Come on, come on. Don't let these people beat you up, man. You know, don't, don't, don't let them tell you what to think. Don't let them control you. Don't, tell, don't let them tell you how to preach or what to share. And so he says to him, after he makes his statement, the incredible statement in verse 16 and 17 about the word of God, he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearance in his kingdom. Timothy, I ain't messing with you, man. Listen to me. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I preached this passage at my youngest son's ordination some years ago. I looked him in the eye and said, boy, this ain't no game. You're not called to be a communicator. You're not called to be a speech maker. You're not called to communicate or to entertain people. You're called to stand on this book. And whether there are 5,000 people listening to you or you only have one person in the audience, you don't ever fool with, tamper with, or mess with the content of what God said. And Paul was telling Timothy, which is a good word for us today. Very, very good word for us today. That there'll be people who won't like what you say. That don't change what, people, what God said in order to please people. Now, I want to balance what I just said there. I don't mean this as some excuse. Sometimes we do need to say things differently. Sometimes our culture hears things differently. Sometimes we need to have wonderful, inviting strategies. I don't mean that the hows may change all around, and we need to do creative, wonderful things, but the what may, must never be messed with. Must never be messed with. You share it, you share it, and you share it. I also think that what Paul was saying is that you share it compassionately. I don't think he was just saying be bombastic about this. He was saying, Timothy, in the words of Steve Jobs, by the way, <laughs> You know, Steve Jobs said something that uh, he didn't believe in focus groups and this kind of thing. And they would ask him, well, how do you know what people want? And you know what he said. He was being more biblical than he intended to be, trust me. Uh, He said, people don't know what they want until you show them. And that's what Paul was saying to Timothy, no, no, don't, don't give in to what they ask for because what they ask for is what they think they want but not what they really want. Give them what they really want, although initially they might give you pushback. Do it. Do it compassionately. I uh, started out to share this. I shared this this morning and it's sort of a little audible that I called. But I got a, got a phone call from my oldest son uh, early in the middle of the week that said, uh, said Dad, uh, 
uh, Miles, his middle boy, his 10-year-old, Miles got in trouble in school. Now, you got to know, I thought maybe he meant, you know, maybe Quentin or Jaden, but Miles got in trouble in school. I said, yeah, he said, and you know what? I'm, I'm, glad, I'm proud of him. I said, really? What, what happened? Well, what ended up happening, Miles is a, he, 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 Miles is a bold witness for Jesus, okay? It's a little guy, and he's compassionate, but he's really a bold witness for Jesus. Well, he'd been asking his dad uh, and, his, and, his, and the family to pray for this little friend of his, a classmate of his, that, that you know, they're, they're great friends, but he did, didn't know Jesus, and so Miles was sharing Jesus with him. Well, a little boy went home and told his parents that, you know, I don't think he was telling them to be, get on Miles. He just casually said how Miles was telling them about Jesus. Well, they contacted the school. And so here's my son being called in. And, and the school handled it right. They didn't, they didn't beat up on him. They, handled, they, in their own way, handled it right. And so Brian said, well, Dad, I'm just a little concerned that Miles won't get discouraged by all of this. I said, I am too, so... I call Miles. Say, Miles is Papa. I am so proud of what you did, boy. And Jesus is proud of you. And don't you stop talking about Jesus. And don't you stop telling people how they can come to know Jesus. Now, we might have to do it a little bit differently this time. And I'm going to pray with you about your little friend. But God is proud of you. And when I hung up, I thought to myself, that little dude probably has more courage than I do. He doesn't know not to be anything but straight up. He hasn't let strategic language be a camouflage for the lack of courage. He just knows the Bible says to do it. And if they don't know Jesus, they won't go to heaven. And I'm a follower of Jesus, so I need to do it. And so do we. Let's stand. I'm going to close in prayer here, but I'd like for those of us today, if you're here and you want any of us to pray for you, no matter what it might be, we would love to pray for you. In fellowship, um, as we quote our mission statement this morning, I want you to leave here praying. Pray for me and the elders and all anyone that teaches God's word here, that we will do it with great authenticity and great reverence, and we will treat it as the living, active voice of God that it is. I long for a church, and we're getting there, we're getting there, we're getting ain't there yet, but I long for a church where the people are appropriately humble about the truth that God gives them, and they realize that that truth is alive and it's real, and you cannot separate what God says from who he is. Let's quote this together. I exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus who love God passionately and love others unconditionally. God, may it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.